to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. Welcome back, Rebels, to another episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. Um, today, we're looking at the middle managers in your organization. Uh, specifically, we're looking at how you can reimagine their role so that they are the most effective tool or weapon you have against poor employee well-being. Because it is possible, right? But but why? Why are we focusing on middle managers? Obi and I talk about it all the time. We've been talking about it for years, even before it became trendy. We know that your line managers are the key to the successful implementation of whatever well-being strategy you have. We know that from personal experience, from research, from just seeing it in practice out in in the field, if you like. We know this. And I know a lot of you know this as well, but the way traditionally companies have operated hasn't made the job of the middle manager very easy when it comes to this. So uh, I like this idea of servant leadership. I like to think of myself as a servant leader. And this is something that Lots of business schools, certainly when I was doing my management degree back in the, <coughs> that, that <laughs> well, it's true, we did talk about this concept of servant leadership, the leader who is there to empower and facilitate the, the work of their direct reports, right? So it's a common, common understood concept, but not many managers are actually properly able to commit to it. And we shouldn't really be surprised. Why? Well, they're not being trained. They don't have naturally the skills or any incentive to develop the skills that allows them to focus on their employees' happiness and welfare. Think about it. And we've said this loads of times and everybody agrees and very few have disagreed. How do many businesses in fact, let's be specific. How does your business make their promoting decisions? Most of the time, the people who succeed and rise through the ranks are the higher performers or those who seem to be the most leader-like, possessing the skills that we think we want, right? So if you're an accountant and you, okay, I'm going to show my my distinct lack of uh, of knowledge and understanding about what it is you accountants do. You're an accountant. You do the best accounts and manage your your clients' books the best, the fastest, the most effective. You get promoted to team leader of the accounting team. And if you do well at that, you get promoted again and again. This is technical skill. Or if you demonstrate those qualities, you are a, I was going to say you're a, a loud, showy, kind of charming person. Then I realized I was describing myself. <laughs> it is the extrovert people. Yeah. The extrovert tend to get this um, attention simply because they're people people. They tend to speak loudest. They tend to take control of a room when they're in there. 
and they're thing person if they're personally driven by ambition then of course that will come through mm-hmm. that's not to say that introverts don't have that but they less likely to demonstrate it yeah literally overwhelm them so you can see how you have all these leaders a lot of them would be uh, extrovert and even if they're not extrovert appearing to be yeah so you have a lot of introvert leaders saying i've had to be more sociable but i have to do things that i don't really it's not really my natural stuff to do but i've had to do that to get ahead and, really. and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with no. being an extrovert i love being my extrovert self but the point is being technically skilled even the very best or having a uh, extrovert personality neither of those things directly correlates to how good a servant leader you will be research has suggested that the most productive individuals typically have high levels of technical skill and personal drive but only 30% of them are likely to become the kind of leaders that prioritize and support employee satisfaction that is directly from mckinsey i didn't just make that up there's so much literature research data out there that that highlights what makes for a good workplace and that those aspects two aspects of that come directly in, within the line manager or middle manager's control so the first one for making your employee or your corporate culture one that supports good employee well-being is good work organization it seems obvious that is giving workers the guidance the tools and the autonomy to make their jobs more meaningful and less frustrating i.e. they can actually do the job yeah that's one the second is that psychological safety that's the lack of any fear or uh interpersonal fear about how you're going to be perceived or how you'll be treated as a as a, a result of how you behave uh, that cannot be a driver of your employee's behavior so a, a a line manager has direct responsibility for one creating the psychological safety within the team and two organizing that employee's workload so that it is they are able to perform at their best yeah. that's why your managers are so so important and with the levels of mental ill health soaring in the workplace and not showing any signs of abating we haven't seen any figures that show that it's come down since its pandemic peak oh. this is something that you really need to focus on so we need to look at how we can support these managers by reimagining their role making it so that they can do the job that we actually need them to do right they are the gatekeepers of the rest of the employee group they have the overview and the oversight of all the teams but they're sandwiched between your senior leaders and they and the the employee workbase and they don't want to lose their standing with upper management they've got to carry out the orders from above and motivate those that they manage to do their best work it's a tough tough job it's a tall order particularly if you haven't been upskilled to to do the job yeah and they're also now recently it's been tasked with implementing diversity and well-being policies 
and adapting to hybrid or remote working patterns. So there's a lot of pressure on them now. And this has been told, oh, yeah, you've got to do this thing now, part of your job. And a lot of the time, without any proper support for them to implement implement this safely and to make sure that they can carry their team along while all this is going. So that's one of the things. We see that a lot with teams when we're, we're training and we see where the staff are thinking, well, yeah, they, they've been, they, they always know when the managers are undergoing a training because all of a sudden they just mm. think they want them to exercise in the tick box exercise. They can feel it. They know this is just something that they've been asked to do their upline. And sometimes you have middle management, management almost colluding with that by saying, oh, well, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't know why we ask to do this. All this well-being malarkey, <laughs> all this in malarkey. Yeah. But I've got, and the reason why they're doing that because they need to be able to feel to their workforce that actually I see you too, and I know there's a lot of work I'm asking you to do. But what can I do about it, right? So it's they're just it's a weird place for them to be in. And also the 2020 Britain Health and Workplace 2022 actually, yeah, mm. Britain Health and Workplace Survey by Vitality Health of 8,500 workers all middle managers, were most likely to say that they experienced burnout compared to the top executive or non-managers. So they are the most, at the moment, the most exhausted group of people. Now, we know the executive have burnout, and it's possible that that's research, the executive weren't necessarily saying, because I think we found that higher senior executive are saying that they're okay, but they're not actually. Mm. So, But the middle managers are very conscious of the fact that they're under pressure, they feel the overwhelm and we can see where it's it, it, it being squeezed from both sides. You can almost imagine the picture in my head. That's why so, we call them the squeeze middle. The squeeze middle. Mm-hmm. And they're also the least likely to say that they have a good work-life balance. So again, they have limited power to resolve team issues, employee issues, because sometimes they have to go back to HR, who then said, well, you make the call. Well, I can't make the call because actually for me to make that call, I will have to go to my senior manager to make that call. And I know they wouldn't make the call or I won't want to tell them because it looks like I'm not handling my team very well. So you can mm. see this weird pattern that it might be. Yeah. Then there's also the limited training in leadership skills. Again, just like we and mentioned earlier, they've been... Their work has been the technical skill. That's where their bread and butter is. That's where they feel most comfortable. Then they've been elevated to leadership without that much training about how you need to change how you work now. And so they don't know how to manage poor performance without feeling like they're either over-supervising their team or trying to get in to do the work themselves or also how to inspire their team to do the best work, really. And when you when you don't receive formal training, coaching, support, the only options you have to do is to to fudge it, make it up as you go along, mm-hmm. and that means role modeling. You tend to role model the behaviors that you've seen in people before you. Mm-hmm. Now that's fine if the manager you had was really good at at um, people managing, but typically the they they aren't because they they come from a different time where the focus on employee welfare was much less yeah so they they really are blind leading blind here and it's your job in hr and senior leadership to provide them with the roadmap of what to do i have to say this comes up a lot where you see a manager who somehow had somehow managed to inspire his team, he's an empathetic leader, he's somehow figured this out, right? Either by because he's naturally like that, or they've undergone their own personal training and coaching, because they're 
validators who like personal development. So they somehow figured this out. And their whole thing, team tried underneath them. The minute that manager leaves, and then that team start to follow one by one to leave, because then you realize it was that manager holding the fort. It wasn't part of the culture of that organization, that this is what leadership looked like. So as soon as that manager leaves the team, the team follow them. But other people or other teams where they don't have a manager of that level, it almost feels unfair. Like it depends on which manager you get, which I don't think any employees should have to feel that their work and their effort and how how they're going to progress, how their mental health is going to be affected or not, dependent on what type of manager did they get in doing that tenure. I think it's greatly unfair. Mm, Okay. Uh, There's one more point that I want to make, slightly tangential. But listen, high performers do need to be rewarded. They do. If you've done a darn good job, see what I did there? I didn't even swear. A darn good job and you show a level of functional expertise that is far superior to those of your colleagues and contemporaries, you should be rewarded with career progression. Too few companies have alternate career paths from the management to the individual performer. I know one, my husband works for Michael Page and they have two career paths. So you're either in the management or you're in the, the individual performer business path. And both have progression up to senior levels, but not not many companies do have that. Yeah, uh, and that's something that we we think needs to change. Certainly for the the larger organisations where this is uh, feasible, um, so that not everybody who's great at their job must therefore go and manage people in order to to progress and and have more opportunity within the organisation. Because otherwise, you will never really be able to find the right kinds of people for those people manager roles. So I just wanted to mention that. No, that's a good, a good point there. And so that brings us to, well, how can we reimagine the role of the middle managers then? You know, where, where are they at? I want you to think about it first. They, people want to progress. Managers want to progress up the ladder. And like in God's sake, they don't necessarily have to go through the line management route the other way. But I want us to think about, for the purpose of this podcast episode, we're going to forget, focus on the middle managers who are line managing other people, okay? So here's the first key point. To imagine that their key job is to lead, is to coach, and to develop other people, not manage tasks, okay? That's one of the reimagination I want to think about, that a line manager or a middle manager who's managing a team of people, key main function of the job is to lead the team, is to coach them, is to develop them, and not necessarily to manage the day-to-day tasks of that team. Okay, so relationships with your line manager have been proven, again, proven in studies to be one of, if not the top factor in determining an employee's job satisfaction. And their job satisfaction is the second most important determinant of an employee's overall well-being. So let me state that again. Your relationship and the the strength and quality of the relationship you have with your boss 
is the number one thing that will determine whether or not you are enjoying your job. And whether or not you're enjoying your job is the second most important determinant of your overall well-being. And this is according to analysis done by, again, our old favorites, McKinsey, as far back as 2020, we've had this data. The only thing more important for determining life satisfaction is your overall mental health. Yeah. But this same research shows that most people find their managers to be less than ideal. In a recent survey, um, so maybe it's a couple of years old now, but 75% of the participants said that the most stressful aspect of their job was their was their boss, their immediate boss. I've had that. Yeah. And I don't think anybody can hand on heart say, oh, I've never had a difficult boss. And it, even if I did, it wouldn't make an impact. That makes such a big impact Much on it. how you show up at work, how effective you can be, how creative, resourceful, how hardworking, everything. Absolutely. Every, and, I, and I did have two, at one point in my career, had a boss that I found absolutely very difficult to, to deal with, manage. And were, I could have got to understand him eventually, but only after I've left, I, I refused to work under him after that. But I understood that that wasn't his skill. He was just brought to, to implement the thing and not necessarily develop and lead and coach. That wasn't really, he was there to set up something and leave, except that he didn't leave. He was there because there was no real cover for him. So it took a while for me to understand him. And I saw, eventually saw him do another piece of work with marketing. He was amazing. I remember thinking, he was just wrong. Like, he's not a people person. He's mm. never been. And and I remember feeling, because you know when you run into someone again mm. in, in a head office or whatever, and this person needs to be the bane of your life, you know. And then, <laughs> and then, and then you realize, they were not the bane of my life. So it's just... Didn't know what to do. I didn't mm. know how to manage him. I didn't know how to manage up. I was still a new manager at the time, managing a team of 12, and I just knew at it and constantly felt I didn't know what I was doing. I was looking for him for guidance, and he couldn't guide me because he didn't know what he was doing either. Um, but to see him in a different department, not a clinical department, by the way, amazing work. And I remember thinking, you know, when you go up to someone and say, I saw that work he did, well done. And we're like, oh, yeah, thank you. You know, that whole mm -hmm. smile on his face. He was a completely different guy. And after I refused to work with him, I got given another manager like you do. And he was amazing. You know, when he did, I, I can do a few myself, go, for, you know, talking to you, completely different. Mm. Like when someone else believed that you are more than you think you are mm. and encouraged you to go for things that they believed you can go for and to achieve those and then think, wow, I actually did that. That is amazing. Now, the point is, I shouldn't be the only one who benefited from having this particular manager. Yeah. And to be fair, I wasn't. I had, you know, he managed a few of us who were leaders, so he was coaching us. That's the thing about him. He wasn't managing the task. He was managing me, trying to get me to be the best I could be, trying to get me, because then what are you going to do about that then? And he would listen to me rant and rave, like I do, <laughs> and I said, so what's next? What are you going to do? What's the next? What are you going to do about this team? The team members who are struggling, what is your plan for them? Those kind of questions. What is the next stage in your career? These are questions that he asked me every single month. And I had to think to myself, what do I actually want, really? So these are the things we're talking about. Those managers 
he, I think, was a natural, but he also had training to be that. I was also in an industry that supported this type of leadership. Mm. Now, there's research by Gallup that shows that only 10% of people actually naturally possess those leadership traits that managers like the one that you had, the good managers, the great managers actually exhibit. Those are things like how to build relationships that create trust, transparency, open dialogue, that kind of stuff. Only 10% of us naturally have it. I like to think I'm one of the 10%. I don't know. I'll I'll let you guys be the judge. The rest of us have to find how to develop them. Mm -hmm. And well, sometimes it doesn't seem like that's an important thing for us to do in our path to the top. Because if you've been promoted because you are either technically excellent or you have shown that you're confident and you can network like a pro and you know how to navigate the office politics, which I hated and refused to play that game. If you can do that easily, then it just, it must be very difficult to not think that actually that's what counts. And it's this this sense of uh, self-reliance and personal power that is contrary to the open, transparent relationship you're trying to build because it's focused on self instead of focused on that servant leadership, right? And actually, there's an organizational psychologist called Tomasz Chomoro Premuzik. Please forgive me (laughs) if I butchered your name. But he suggests that lots of leaders achieve their position by being self-centered, overconfident, narcissistic, arrogant, manipulative, and risk-prone. Those aren't servant leadership qualities at all. But we all know managers, all of us, who have gotten to very senior positions because they can do these things. They are those things. Can I also add to the fact that even though we've established those self-centered, overconfident, narcissistic, arrogant, manipulated, and risk-prone, some of those traits have been taught. They had to learn. Some people mm-hmm. have had to really concord themselves into this type of persona because that's what they saw. And well, if you want to lead teams, you want to progress in your career, this is what you're going to have to exhibit. So there'll be start to look not all, all those senior leaders how they were naturally. They've had to learn how to be copy what senior people did, go home and feel shit about it. And then come back to work and carry on. Because this is what they said you ought to do if you're going to make a go at it. Mm. And a lot of the burnout thing that we saw, people who were self-medicating with alcohol or drugs, is because you're doing Mm. something that's against you, against your grain, but you somehow have to suck it up and get on with it. So I just wanted to just mention that there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the other thing is it's demonstrated or perpetuated by our hiring practices in organizations because companies, according to McKinsey, have been proven to to fail to choose the right talent for management positions 82% of the time. 82% of the time, we're looking for managers who display the wrong characteristics. And we back that up in the performance evaluation metrics that, again, reward them for the wrong characteristics. And if you do that, then you are persistently missing out on the upsides of employee satisfaction. Yeah? 
you're actually enabling a toxic culture that can lead to serious performance and health issues. So you need to understand that it needs to be baked into their job, that your job isn't to be functionally excellent and therefore show everybody else how to be functionally excellent. Yeah. It's exactly as Obehi said. It's to manage them, manage them, inspire them, coach them, lead them, and then they will do the job. Yeah. And it brings me, I bring that to the second thing I want you to imagine for our middle managers. Mino, what if the people that we hire to manage others are actually people smart? They are interested in people. They want to develop people. This is their natural inclination is to mm. do that. Mm. Can you imagine if we hire those people to manage a team of other people? How much amazing work we do. Like my manager, I'm going to name him. His name is Ed Shorter. So if you uh, uh, connect with him on LinkedIn. I'm connected <laughs> with you, Ed. They're naturally like that, but he had to do work to do like that. At a, time, a lot of time we frustrated him because he's human too. I frustrated him, other team members frustrated him, and he had to manage those things. But he is ultimately a people person, also introverted. So he would describe himself as ambivert, because in other words, he had no preference. But that tells you this is someone who was able to listen. He was interested in people, interested in what each of us had to give our values. Now, if you have people, so that's why the empathy is important, but it's not a deal breaker. You just have to want people to do well. Engaged empathetic core is higher than mine. I'm still empathetic, but not as empathetic as other people are. But I can still manage and lead and lead to develop someone because that's what I like. I like people and I want to see them progress, right? So I just want you to think about that for a moment. What if there is that we hire people, smart people, who like people, who want to develop people and give them that job? For those people, like Ngozi mentioned earlier, who don't want to, they're not people people. They don't want to progress people. They don't, we're not interested. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. Nothing wrong with that at all. So they should be given another process, another uh, pathway they can follow for progression. And if they choose later down the line, say, no, what I could do with some experience in managing people and supporting people, then they can have options to do that in some way. Sometimes it can be training. Sometimes it can be in a mentor. Something that helps them to feel like I'm developing my peer skills without having that be my actual job role. Because that's what I want you to think about, okay? So they can manage a project, for example, but not the development of that team. Mm-hmm. But they can. But when you put them in that role, they have to be have some level of interest in wanting to know that this is not where you. it's all about you. Look, it's about supporting your team and moving as a team and helping people to develop, but you're not doing it so long-term that you feel overwhelmed by all of this pressure. That's what I wanted to say. That Just imagine if we hired people who were actual people, people, mm. and people smart. What about this? Imagine that we hired people who were people, people, people smart, and we gave them adequate training and coaching so that they can do their job well. I mean, it's revolutionary, yeah. isn't it, really? Yeah, we just, we know, we just came up with a brand new idea today. <laughs> Light bulb moment, mic drop. <laughs> yeah, but a survey by the CIPD in 2022, which is, I'm sure you guys know, an association for HR 
management professionals, they found that only 53% of managers said they had the training and information they needed to manage their staff well. Why? Why only half? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean... Oh, and this survey, there was a survey I want to talk about. No, I mentioned, I've always talked about loving qualitative data um, because you can hear the story behind the stats when you're collecting data about what managers said and all of that. But there was um, Dr. Zobia Bodorek. She is a senior research fellow at the Institute of Employment Studies. She interviewed a group of line managers about their approach to wellbeing conversations with their one-to-one, blah, blah, blah. And one line manager, look at the direct quote, said... It feels like I'm going home with my own hopes and dreams. And then when line managing, going home with the hopes and dreams of maybe six other people and feeling like I'm now responsible for their health and well-being. And all of this had an impact on how I feel at work. This summed up almost all the line managers we've encountered since pandemic. But I wanted to hear this. It's with limited training and support that they have this feeling. Because really, with proper training, it's not actually their job. So with proper training and coaching, it changes to something like that. We could direct quote from our trainees, and here's a quote. It's almost like now, as a result of the course, I have special glasses. I put them on, and that allowed me to see the early signs of declining mental health that I wasn't able to identify before. Or, another quote here, I have an increased confidence and understanding of the role of a leader. Learning about people, more than management technique with a revolution, feeling equipped with new approaches to situation. My team feel better invested in. I have involved them and shared parts of the training. This has strengthened my team no end. Because the difference between that initial quote that said, I'm going home with the hopes and dreams of sick people, is someone who is untrained. They haven't got enough training because really when they're trained, you realize it wasn't your hopes and dreams. It's your people's hope and dream. It's your team, it's your staff hope and dream. They carry their hope and dream. You just help them think about it. You help them execute it, just like Ed Chorter did for me. That's what I wanted to share here. So when you have managers saying, I'm feeling overwhelmed, all these people, all these things I have to do is because that is a classic example of when they have not been trained and adequately supported to support other people. That's a classic example of what everybody thinks a a good manager needs, the trait that they need, which is niceness. Niceness isn't isn't a personality trait that is required for effective line management, yeah? And that niceness doesn't necessarily help you at all. It can add to the emotional load that you're carrying as a line manager, which will not help you effectively manage. Now, Obi was saying earlier that she has a lower natural empathy than me. In Aurora, it's Obehi who manages our stuff. <laughs> it is, actually. Yeah. yeah. I have really high levels of empathy. I don't want to be a people manager. I don't want to people yeah, you manage. you get emotionally drained by it. Actually. I do. Everybody's thing you've taken on. Yeah, I yeah. don't want to. I'm quite happy going down the individual performer route. That's fine. Obi is much better place to do it. So it's got nothing to do with the natural niceness. No. It isn't. So that's something that we need to kind of shift the dial on what a good manager is. Oh no, he's great. He's really nice. That that doesn't that's not what you're looking for. We need to make sure that you're supporting your leaders with the right kind of training 
and coaching to help them properly people manage. We've trained leaders on topics like being resilient in the midst of change and growth and uncertainty or volatility, VOCA, how to have sensitive conversations about whatever, whether it be mental health or general well-being issues, how to have empowering conversations about performance management, dealing with personnel issues, delivering negative feedback in a positive way, what employee well-being management tools to use and how you can understand and leverage the different personality profiles within your team for overall success. Line managers have to be trained in people skills. And if they come naturally to some more than others, they still need to learn the strategies and the tools to help their team maneuver through these challenging situations that we find ourselves in, right? You've heard the expression that people don't leave organizations, they leave bad managers. Well, I think both is true. Because yeah, so, so. bad organizations hire and promote bad managers, yeah. but still. Similarly, a company's in trouble if a great boss goes and then everybody leaves. So you want to make sure that your employees aren't facing the manager lottery. Oh, I really hope I get Ooh, I Ed like shorter. That. Manager lottery. But that's what that's it is. Perfect. Word yeah. That. I hope Ed's gonna be my new boss. Mm. I hope I don't get XYZ over there. It's not fair and it's not actually effective or productive. Every employee and every manager should be equipped to do their job. And their job is what we just said they were earlier. The job of the manager is to empower through coaching and leading and developing the employee to do their job, right? Uh, I think we've, we've talked a lot about this. I mean, one of the things... Again, I just have to make this point. One of the reasons why people are not investing in their line managers. I know that there was some research done by the recruitment specialists LHH this year. They said that only 44% of organizations invested in leadership development. And even though there was the great resignation, only 30% of organizations have any kind of leadership retention solution in place, which is crazy to me. But the main reason, financial considerations, lack of ROI, so return on investment, and and also lack of understanding of the benefits. Listen, your job, your job as the PNC lead, the HR lead, the CEO, whoever you are listening to this podcast, your job is to persuade those who sign off on the checks that there is no better investment in your employees than in making sure their line managers are equipped to lead them, right? There are statistics out there to support that. There's evidence out there to support that. And if in any doubt, do not hesitate to reach out to me and Obi. You can click on the link in the show notes and book a call Build that business case because your people need this. Your company needs this. And again, we'll cut it off there before I start preaching, right? <laughs> but I, I'll do a good brief summary of it. So here are three things that I want you to think about, go away and think about. Your managers, is their key job right now to lead, coach, and develop? Is that what you have? If not, consider how you might improve on it. Are they people smart people? Do they care about people? 
And if they don't, how can you change some of that? How can you provide training for those people who are not naturally people people? And then finally, are your middle managers adequately trained and coached to manage other people? What's the quality of the training that they currently have? Here's a hint. One or two day training isn't training. Okay, consider an opportunity for them to implement what they learn and time to implement it and go back to return to it and come back to it and coach and come back to it. That will determine whether or not you have a right and adequate training and coaching for them to do. Our training programs are typically six three, months long, yeah, three to three, six, six months. months. Three months is a short training program for yeah. us. But and if you want that uh, culture change, that transformational development, yeah. you need six months because it takes us time to learn we're creatures of habit we keep falling back on the things that we've done before and it's it's not possible for us to change who we are or how we are in a couple of days exactly and we do need time to reflect on why we're changing and and whether or not we want to change and to get to to hear other people's experience of them to hear other people's ideas on them to be able to now work out oh okay I don't have to change in this particular way I can do it in this way because that's more natural for me that takes time for someone to acknowledge that to feel it and then to now commit to learning the skills that they need to learn if they want to or their children to be, still become or remain people managers excellent right we'll catch you in another future episode of the well-being rebellion thank you so much for listening we'll See catch you next, you next time. time bye bye thanks for listening to this episode of the well-being rebellion if you liked what you just heard please share it with your colleagues follow us on linkedin the link will be in the show notes and generally show us some love We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.